0: welcome to the podcast of eden worship center please open your bibles with us and join us as we study through the book of psalms for more information about our church please visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co just making a comment as we concluded the worship time and the offering was beginning to be taken up, that it was, it was greeted to the chorus of crying children in the sanctuary. Did you notice that? Uh, can I just encourage you, that is a, not only a good thing, that is a wonderful thing. Uh, where there are no young families, where, where God isn't reaching into the next generation, uh, it is actually possible to just have complete silence in church, and that is absolutely the last thing that we want. Uh, it is a sign of life and a sign of growth. And so uh, if you have a kiddo, we're glad that you're here. Uh, we do have some facilities uh, for that, uh, but I, I want us to just challenge ourselves as a congregation. Uh, let's embrace what God has done in, in bringing these young ones in, kind of like we bring them up every week and, and we pray for them uh, it's not that we want to kick them out. We, we actually want them to go and hear God's word. So let, let's pray that for them. Lord, we pray, Lord, for these little boys and little girls. God, our heart is not just that this room would be quiet and tidy and easy for us. Lord, our heart is that their hearts would be captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would get a hold of them. Lord, that you would reveal yourself as Savior Lord, and even from a young age that they would put their trust in you and you would call their name. Lord, thank you, God, for these boys and girls that we have for this brief period of time. Lord, help us to be good stewards, whether it's moms and dads or grandparents or Sunday school teachers. Lord, let us point them towards Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, off you go. Well, as the kids are going, why don't you open your Bibles with me to Psalm 27. We're going to be continuing in our series on the Psalms up through the end of the year. This week, we're looking forward to Thanksgiving and time with family and time where our entire nation stops and remembers it is important to give thanks. So we're actually going to be looking, because Thanksgiving sort of sits in the middle of these two Sundays, we're going to be looking this week at Thanksgiving in the midst of hardship. Next week, we're going to be looking at that sort of joyful, resonating Thanksgiving from Psalm 100. But before we get there, I think it's important for us to remember that many times we don't come to that point of thankfulness before God without a point of suffering, without hardship that has come our way. And so we want to acknowledge that we actually find this in God's Word. We're not actually looking for some perfect utopian society where everything goes wonderfully your way just because you're a Christian. I think the Bible actually says the exact opposite of that is going to happen. In this world, you will have trouble, but Jesus says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Would you stand up with me as we read this psalm together? Psalm 27. If you're visiting with us, we have made it our tradition to stand as we read the main scripture text for the morning uh, as a way of showing honor and submission to God's word. So Psalm 27 says of David, The Lord is my light and my salvation, of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes... It's they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter. In the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. And I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, I do seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversary, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we want to hear the echo of that encouragement from centuries past into our hearts and our minds today, that our strength and our confidence and our stronghold is not found in our ability to save ourselves or right our world. Lord, it's not found in some uh, material gain or wealth or political power. Our strength is in the Lord alone. So we wait for you, and we say, God, teach us to be thankful even in the midst of hardship. Help us to look to you as our only Savior and our only hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, let me give you a little bit of a roadmap where we're headed this morning. In thinking about this psalm of thanksgiving, even though the the psalmist tells this story surrounded by enemies who are, are getting closer and closer and surrounding him, he has a choice. And the first thing we want to look at is thankfulness, thankfulness versus fear. One of the things that is universally true is that holidays are difficult. Uh, Coming up to things like Thanksgiving and Christmas can be especially difficult if you've lost a loved one. It can be especially difficult if this has been a rough year, or like poor old Chuck Reed, who we've been praying for, this has been a rough month, and it seems like you just cannot shake sickness. So by the way, be praying for Chuck uh, he's, he's an awesome trooper, like up here playing drums. He got up here, he's like, I can't hear out of this ear entirely. So I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, praise God, we are grateful to have faithful men serving in different areas of this church. So let's be praying for him. And yet, when you're going through hardship like that, it can be so easy to get discouraged. So thankfulness versus fear. The second thing we're going to talk about is seeing him, seeing Jesus, and not just the problem. It's so easy to get focused on the problem ahead of us and forget that Christ is at work with an unstoppable kingdom on this earth. And the last thing is then we choose to trust. Well, Thanksgiving, as we celebrate it as a holiday, is going to basically bring to light the height of the divine confusion in our society and our generation. A society that is so confused about what it means to worship God or acknowledge a God so confused about what it means for them to have any part of that that they approach something like Thanksgiving and they have a giant problem. Now, they don't know they have a problem, but they have a giant problem, and here it is. To give thanks, you actually need two things. You need someone or something to be thankful for, right? This is what I am thankful for. And the second thing is you have to have someone to be thankful to. You can't just say I'm thankful without saying I am thankful for this person, this something's interaction in my life. Now, you can, you can reduce that down to a something, but the problem is that things come from someone. And so our society is left with a quandary, who am I going to be thankful to? So there's a lot of thankfulness to friends and family and co-workers and bosses, and yet it kind of misses the entire point of thanksgiving. Because we have rejected God, and we have done so in a way that the only logical thing to do with our thankfulness is to turn it into what Thanksgiving has actually become, right? Secular thankfulness doesn't have any other end outside of itself, so it then looks to itself. Now, starting a few years ago, we began celebrating Thanksgiving by preparing for Black Friday. Now, come on, think about this with me. We actually call it Black Friday because we acknowledge there is something horrible about this day, right? Now... (laughs) If you're, if you're in the retail industry, it's because it kind of helps get you back into the black. But for most of us, we, we say, there's something so horrible that you can offer me the best deal in the world. And we got some of those magazines in the mail just like you did. And my wife's first words out of her mouth when she saw it is, no way. I am not going out on that morning to be trampled in the masses. Because we have turned this Thanksgiving, and now it's, it's bled from Friday down into Thursday. And then the whole week, we have celebrated Thanksgiving by celebrating our own greed. I'm thankful that I can have this stuff. I am thankful that I can acquire these things. And now greed and fear become the main motivation in a holiday that was once called Thanksgiving. It's incredibly ironic, but it's perfectly logical for a society that has rejected a sovereign God to whom we are thankful. So our first choice is thankfulness or fear. Look back with me at these verses, one through three. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it's they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. I want to say to us as Christians, it's super easy to read over those verses and just hear the spiritual bits, right? Just hear the the stuff that goes on Christian coffee cups and T-shirts and say, man, this is going to be easy. This is going to be great. Yet the reality is you read these verses, uh, most of us in our life have never faced an army encamped against us, a physical army who is wanting to destroy us. So much so that the psalmist describes it as wanting to eat up my flesh, as if they're wild animals who were going to come not only kill me and destroy me, but then rip apart everything that I have left. We're talking about a genuine threat to life and health and happiness. In these verses, he talks about the fear of the unknown, those who would attack us, those who would devour us like a wild animal. They're surrounding us. They have declared war on us. Now, if you have a television that gets the news, that may sound familiar. Because we live in a time where fear and terrorism are gripping the hearts of the Western world. The things that happen in Paris that most of the civilized governments in our society have said, oh, it's no way. These guys are an isolated group. This little ISIS thing going on, we got it under control. The reality is we will never have evil under control by human means. There will be a day when Christ Jesus puts all things, all enemies under his feet. And yet there are very real things to be afraid of. Just this week, ISIS not only has threatened other places in the world, they threatened New York City. And intelligence reports say that they are actively seeking chemical and biological weapons. We're talking stuff where a very small amount of it can kill a very large segment of our population. Folks, I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying there are real things in this world to be afraid of. Let's not, let's not pretend like that doesn't exist. Let's not pretend like we, we live in that happy, fake, plastic, Christian smile of a world where, well, there's really nothing to be scared of except, here's what the psalmist says, there are real things to be afraid of, but the Lord is my light and my salvation, so who am I going to be afraid of? He is the stronghold of my life. He is my bomb shelter, if you want to put it into 1960s terminology. So of who am I going to be afraid? Do you guys realize the very, very worst thing that ISIS can do is send you to heaven? As a Christian, that's, that's the worst that they have to offer. Now, I want to, I want to just put a little note in there. If you and your family, your wife, your kids, your loved ones aren't sinking those roots into faith and trust in the gospel and salvation of Jesus Christ, you have a lot to fear. But if you have, and if you do, we literally can live in this world without fear. Now, we can be tempted to obsess over these things. And let's, let's face it, there's a lot of people who obsess over evil in the world, except they obsess and then they do nothing, right? You, you're friends with these folks on Facebook. Uh, every potential evil thing that comes their way, they feel it is their God-given opportunity and responsibility to post it for their 26 friends on Facebook to see because that's really going to change everything. Now, I want to contrast that with this kind of fear that just absolutely shuts you down and paralyzes you and you can do nothing with actually responding to the threat because there are those who must think about these things and be actively watching and addressing the threat. And I, I just want to acknowledge this morning, there are some people who come to this church every Sunday who we are so thankful that God has brought them here because they're part of that watching for the threat that would even come into a place like this. And there's some people who we are very glad that they pray with their eyes open. While all the rest of us bow our heads and, and close our eyes, they're the ones who really have a hard time with that Because most of them, if they've been trained in law enforcement or the military, are thinking, I need to keep my eyes on the door. I need to keep my eyes on on who's here and who's coming in and out. And even in just a small church like this in the middle of nowhere, man, we appreciate that God plants men and women in our midst who take up that responsibility. It's actually a pretty great thing. Can I just say, given the the uh, cough and sore throat I've had for the last month. If we get through this without a giant coughing spell, it will also be to the glory of God. Okay, good. So contrast that fear with what the psalmist talks about. He talks about confidence in who we know our God to be. Now, doesn't fear seem to just sort of grow Like It starts with some thought of what might be, and then it kind of grows to an irrational place. It's not because necessarily what we see on the news or someone tells us, it's at Now, come on. Just be honest with yourself for a second. We think about it, and we think about it, and we think about it, and we think about it. And it doesn't even have to be terrorism. It can be, what is that person saying about me? I wonder what they think about me. And we think about it until it grows into this monstrous thing. Here's what the psalmist says. You can contrast that with a confidence in who we know our God to be. He is my salvation. He is the stronghold of my life. He is the one that if he is with me, I need never be afraid. And I love how he throws in here. He makes the bad guys stumble. Those who would pursue me, those who would come after me, they're the ones who fall down. Now, I'm not saying it's not possible for the bad guys to accidentally send you to heaven. Right, that wasn't their plan. Right, Just like as the devil hurled every evil plan that he had against Jesus on the cross, his, his goal in that was not to help accomplish the redemption of mankind. Amen? That was God's plan from the beginning. Folks, there are, there are more martyrs today for the gospel than there ever has been in any other generation. And God's still sovereignly in control of that. We don't have to fear death. We don't actually have to fear persecution because persecution and darkness actually just turns the light up on the truth of the gospel. Thankfulness in difficult times is choosing what I will allow to occupy my heart and my mind. For some of you, Thanksgiving is about to be a very difficult season and holiday for you. And yet in that time, I want to encourage you, let's let's make a choice what we allow to occupy, what we allow to, to sit and ruminate and go over and over in our hearts and in our minds. Will I anxiously focus on the very real tragedies and heartaches and evil that surrounds me? Charles Spurgeon described it like this, we must all subscribe to the declaration that this earth more or less is a veil of tears that it is not our rest, for it is polluted. That if you look towards this earth, or the things that you have gathered around you on this earth to bring you happiness, you're going to be horribly disappointed when you find that it's basically a veil of tears. It's just a setup for more heartache and more heartbreak. Or, we can consistently refocus I want you to get that that phrase in your head, consistently refocus, because your eyes will be drawn back to the things of this earth, back to good things, good gifts that God has given you, like home and family and loved ones, children, happiness, jobs. You will be drawn back to that, but we have to consistently refocus our eyes and our hearts back on to Christ, back on to the God who has said, I am your stronghold, I am your light and salvation when all else is shaken. So we, we have a choice, church. We can either live in thankfulness, or we can live in fear and dread of what is out there. And It's a choice that we have to make. The second thing, we're going to attempt to get through this pretty quick uh, so that we can get to the... Uh, dinner together and so that my voice holds out. Uh, Second thing is seeing him and not just the problem. Man, problems creep up on us, don't they? They get so big, so fast. And before you know it, the thing you're worried about, the thing that seems to occupy all of your time and your thoughts and your energy has grown to such a gigantic proportion that we just can't hardly keep up with it. Am I going to put all of my energy on the problem or am I going to look... To Christ. Verse 4 says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after. Now, here would be a great time. Here's a great time for the psalmist to say, God, wipe out my enemies. <clears throat> God, save my family. God, bring deliverance, right? Because he, he's described this as an army in against him, as people surrounding him. This is a great time to say, God, wipe them out. But he doesn't say that. It says, one thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. It's a bizarre request. It's a strange thing to say. Why, why would you not in the midst of trouble pray for deliverance? Why would you not in the midst of trouble and sickness pray for health or, or death pray for life? folks, I want to say those are good things to pray for. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But if that is the thing that your heart is set on, when God's plan differs from your plan, your world will be shaken. Are you listening to me? If you pray fervently and then you don't see that happen, your world will be shaken. The Psalm Writer doesn't say that. David doesn't say that. He actually says, God, here's what I want to see. I want to see you. I want to see your hand at work in this world. I want to see your power demonstrated. He describes it in very active. This isn't a passive faith. He says, I am asking, I am seeking that I may dwell within your house. I want you to keep in mind as he's praying this, the bad guys haven't gone away. The problem isn't over. This isn't some magic prayer where you send your money to a TV evangelist and all of your troubles go away. That works really well, by the way. Really super good. Uh, It doesn't work like that. They're still there, and yet he says, God, I can see them. I don't have to worry about them. I want to see you. I want to see God's hand at work in this. We're not talking about this idea of claiming sanctuary. Like this old idea where if someone was chasing you, you could actually run to either a city of refuge or run into an actual church sanctuary and claim sanctuary. You can't come in and get me here. Most of the world thinks this is how Christians behave. We just run away from our problems. We run to God. God is the crutch. He's what we lean on. You don't actually want to face reality. You don't want to deal with it, so you're just running away. I want to say that's the opposite of what is being discussed here. That's the opposite of what actually is going to be helpful for your life. We actually don't run to God as retreat. We run to him to rally for attack. Because you still have to face your problems. You still have to face the world that is surrounding you. But most of us don't know where to rally. And then, unfortunately, like minds tend to attract. And so we rally towards people who have the exact same paranoia and fear that we do. If you think I'm wrong, go check your friends on Facebook. There's a great story comes out of the Civil War in the Battle of Manassas, also called Bull Run, where there's this farmhouse that sort of sits off to the side. There's a little hill and then a giant open field space that goes there. And the Confederates sort of had control of this hill, which I don't know if you know anything about military things, but having the high ground usually a good thing. And the Union troops uh, push them off the hill. And they're, they're running, literally running for their life, running away from this enemy that wants to attack them, past this house, through this open field, and you got different divisions from all over the south, until one general, who some people have classified as insane, but I don't think he was, I think he was just a little zealous, gets tired of running, and he just stops. He doesn't stop behind cover, he actually stops just right in the middle of the field, right where his men and himself were open to cannon fire and musket fire. They could have been plowed down, and he just stops. Just hit a point where I stopped running. There's a Confederate general who sees it. His name was Bernard B. And his men, he's from South Carolina, his men are running behind him, and he stops, and he, he says, form, form. Tell him to, you know, get in line here. And he points, and he says, there stands Jackson like a stone wall. Rally to the Virginians, knowing there's a place that we can rally and fight again. Now, as I tell you that story, I want you to know this is a horrible example of this, right? We're talking about finding a place to rally that we we don't retreat from our problems. We actually run to God so we can turn and face our problems. This story is a horrible example because God is our stronghold, He's the defender of our life, amen. Uh, it didn't work out like that for General B. General B's men turn and join Jackson, except General B gets about six to eight feet away from Jackson. He's like, we're here, and he gets shot and killed. Not exactly the uh, ending we're hoping for. So it, it kind of makes it a bad example, but here's, here's the reality in that. You have to know where to run when trouble comes. And when you're running, you have to know when to stop running and who to rally to. Because if you just keep running away, you're never going to face anything. You're never going to defeat any of the foes that come into your life. And if you rally just to a man, I'm telling you, men do not have the power to protect you. Come on, listen to me. This church doesn't have the power to protect you. Your pastors don't have the power to protect you. God alone is our refuge, and our strength, very present help in times of trouble. So you don't rally behind a man who can let us down. We rally behind a sovereign God who holds the whole world in his hand. Psalm 140, verse 7 says this, O Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Verse 5, back in... Psalm 27 says, for he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. You know, it's easy reading verses like that to think that when trouble comes, God is just going to act like, like an overprotective mom or dad and just sort of, come here, come here, let me shelter you. You just stay here till the whole thing's over. That was not David's experience when he wrote these psalms and said, you cover me, in the day of battle, that there was an experience of God's divine protection and blessing while David was hard at work, that he hides me, he shelters me, he conceals me, he covers me, and in the end, he lifts me up. Now, anybody who's had any military or law enforcement training, you start hearing words like concealment and cover, and those start to make a little more sense to you. That there's, there's an ideal that, that, that there's things that conceal us, they kind of hide us, but they don't protect us. You, you could hide behind that curtain, but you can still shoot through a curtain. And then there's cover. There, there's places that you can get behind that are safe. They are a fortress that you can't break through and you can't shoot through. But again, I want you to keep in mind, this is not about retreat. The Christian life is not about retreat. There may be times where you are forced to take cover, but you're forced to take cover so that you can fight back. This isn't a terribly Mennonite sermon right at the minute. Um, I, grew up, I grew up in the Mennonite church, which I dearly love. And I, I want to say that I am eternally grateful for my Anabaptist roots. But as an Anabaptist, I had, I had trouble with David. David seemed to be a guy who kept rushing into battle. We would have had to put him out of our church, right? Uh, I want to suggest to us that there there are times where we are forced, at least in the spiritual. Most of you, hopefully, will never have to be forced in the physical, although that day may come. But in the spiritual realm, you are forced to go to battle in your life. And if you are a husband, I hope you go to battle for your wife and for your kids. You say, there's a real enemy, and so I'm going to take cover behind the Lord, but I'm also going to be firing back, right? All right, I lost some of you with that, but anyways, here we go. Verse 6, you can catch back up. Uh, It says, now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy, and I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Again, you get this picture of not only is God not just hiding us, but God is enabling us, he's lifting us up in these difficult situations to the place that we overcome. That my head, my victory is lifted up over my enemies. Here's what Psalm 3, verse 3 says, But you, O Lord, are to shield about me my glory and the lifter of my head. I remember as a kid we used to sing uh, a version of this psalm and this was kind of the, uh, the chorus of it and because I was a little kid I always had this idea that God is the lifter of my head so if I'm looking down, like he just kind of lifts me up if I'm having a really, you know, down day and, you know, my chin is sagging, that God like God's some weird grandmother who just comes and put his finger on your chin and just lifts your little head up it's all right, buddy. It's okay. That's not what David's talking about here. When David uses phrases like he is the lifter of my head, it is a a battle term that says there are all kinds of people who want to be lifted up in victory. God is going to crush them and my head, my victory will be lifted up over them. It's kind of like if you watch one of those gladiator type movies, my son and I, uh, All the women in our house were gone yesterday, and so uh, we engaged in some serious man activity and watched the movie Gladiator, which he hadn't seen. Uh, If you ever watch those movies, at the end of it, there's a time where the victor's head is lifted up because he's the only one standing. And you kind of look around, and there's all the enemies, and my head has been lifted up. That's exactly the type of thing that David is saying here. It's that kind of God can give you victory in the midst of the hardest, most impossible situations in your life. So the power to overcome doesn't come from us. That's the whole point of these things, that God is the lifter of my head. It's not I'm so smart, (coughs) I figured it out. It's not that I'm so powerful I can accomplish it. It is God and His graciousness towards me. Verse 7 says this, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me, and answer me. Man, have you ever been there? It, it, now, it, it's all great to sit here and talk about victory and God you know, giving us victory over our enemies, except the reality is when we pray these things, we don't feel like we have victory over anything. Come on, let, let's be super real here, church. We're talking about deep, dark moments where you feel like the probability of you losing is way greater than the probability of you winning and if we're honest, many of us have been there. We say, I'm not even sure it's possible to win. I, I'm not sure anything good will ever come out of my life again. And David says, hear me, O Lord, when I cry aloud. God, be gracious to me. Don't be harsh with me. Don't, don't push me away. Don't let me be defeated Answer me. I appreciate the background music. You guys are doing good. Keep it up. Psalm 69, verse 17 says this. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Look at those words. Hide not your face from your servant. You don't pray that unless you think there's a chance that God isn't listening. There's a chance that I'm, I'm crying out in this desperate painful moment and god doesn't listen and god doesn't care. That's actually why you say god don't turn your face from me. Don't don't hide from me. I'm in distress. I have no one else to turn to. I have nothing else to depend on. Please don't waste time. It feels like my life is fleeting. I need your salvation in this very moment. Can you hear the desperation? in those very real words. And church, I want you to know that God hears. God hears those deep longings for his favor on our life. I mean, really, when you think about it, what we're asking for is, God, let your blessing and your favor be on my life. That's why we seek God's face. We don't, we don't seek God's face just so that we can have some greater understanding. That, that happens where, where we see God and we, we understand him more. But when we understand him more, God's blessing that deep richness of his hand upon our life is so much greater. It's not that we've earned it. It's not that we have acquired it. It's kind of what John Piper talks about, that divine hedonism where God has built within us this desire for pleasure in him, for finding fulfillment in him, for finding joy in him, and not in all the other things that surround us. Because it's he who is working in us, we have to trust in who he is. Look at verse 8. Stick with me. We're getting there here. You've said, seek my face. It's a general thing. God, God calls to mankind, seek my face. Who I am. F- find out who my character is. Find out how I do things. Find out how I want this world to be run. Seek my face. And the psalmist David, in this desperate moment, takes that General call to everyone and responds as if God was just speaking to him. And he says back to God, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. I want to know, God, who you are. I want to know how you work. I want to know your character. I want to know your nature so that we can walk and live in his favor in our circumstances and despite our circumstances. Now, why is it important to know this? Because when hard times and bad circumstances come your way, if you haven't known and discovered the face of God, who he is, how he works, there's a chance you're going to get in this moment and accuse God of evil that he's not guilty of. God, you have done evil towards me, but we know within the character of God, he is incapable of evil and all that he does is good. Man, I'm telling you, if you have slept through the rest of this sermon and you woke up, because someone coughed next to you and you're about to go back to sleep and this is all you're going to hear, listen up. God is incapable of evil and all he does is good. You can go back to sleep. And I hope that comes back to you in the deepest, darkest moments where you have no hope for your life and no hope for your future and your heart wants to turn towards God and say, God, you screwed me. You completely left me hanging on this. This is your fault. You have done evil to me. And these words come back, God is incapable of evil and all that he does is good. Do I have the answer to the question? Nope. Do I know how it all fits together? No. Do I know that God is good? Unshakably. See, that's a firm foundation that our feet can land on. that. That's a rallying point that we can go to so that we can turn and face our fears and attack our enemies. We trust his character in our circumstances and sometimes despite of our circumstances, especially when it feels like, right, feels like God is against us. Look at verse 9 and 10. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Can you hear the reality just sort of bleeding into his words? Like, God, I I really feel like you have left me alone. I really feel like I am on my own in this thing. And yet, then he stops right in the middle and says, but you've been my help before. So right now, I feel like I'm alone. But if I think a little bit, I can remember that you have been my help when I felt like this before. And then he says, it may be that the people closest to me, my mother and my father, I thought it was funny he didn't say his wife or wives, as the case may be with David. Uh, (laughs) I mean, let's think about it. God ordained marriage. God ordained this joining of a man and a woman, two different people together, and he joins them together as one. And then, come on, married people, everything is perfectly blissful after that. Amen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> right? <laughs> and if you haven't been well taught, there's a chance, especially in that first year of marriage where you're still stupid. Right? That when hard times come, who are you going to go back to? Mom and dad. Right? i got lots of problems. i got to talk to mom about this. Right? Because this person doesn't understand me, but you do, mommy. Right? Even if those people forsake you, and by extension, everybody else on the planet, he says, the Lord will take me in. Even if nobody else wants me, God will never turn his back on me. God is incapable of evil, and all that he does is good. David reminds himself in the midst of that moment where he wants to say, everybody's against me, and probably God too. He goes back to God's character, and he says, wait a minute. God doesn't act like that. Can I I tell you one of the anchors for your life is digging into this book Of God's Word and finding out the the character and the nature of God so that when people in our world accuse God of evil you can respond God doesn't act like that that is not within his nature That's not within his character he is my salvation he will take me in in the past he's been my help that gives me hope that right now he can be my help the last one is we make a choice to trust we choose to trust our trust in God is choosing to put our faith in Him. Man, sometimes we think of faith as this really fuzzy, weird, you can't quite put your hands on it type of thing, where I can't see anything that's going on. We call this blind faith. I can't see anything that's going on. There's no way I trust that God is going to do this. But like going to a fortune teller and then believing whatever garbage they tell you, or reading your horoscope, which is the same thing, and believing whatever garbage it tells you, which the Bible calls divination, And if you're doing it, you should stop. That wasn't in my notes, but that's just true. Uh, That blind faith says, God, I don't don't see any way this is going to happen, but I'm just going to trust you. That's ridiculous. We actually know the character and the nature of our God. We look back at his interaction with us in the past, and we say, I can trust all of those things so I can trust him going forward too. That's not blind. That's actually faith with its eyes wide open. Here's what Dad said a couple weeks ago. He was talking about this. He says, we don't have blind faith. We can clearly see God's faithfulness in our past. And so we trust Him now, even when we can't clearly see. In those moments where your life feels like it is in the fog, we're not walking by sight. We're actually walking by faith. Not as if we close our eyes, we actually just turn and look backwards and say, God, I can see that you were in control then. I believe that you're in control now. We trust God with our future because of his faithfulness in our past. I want to say that that's the reasonable thing for us to do. It's reasonable if God is who he says he is and he works in our life the way we believe that he does, the way we have seen him work, it is reasonable to put our faith and our trust in him. Look at verse 11. It's also reasonable to say, Lord, if that's reality, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. God, if you have if you've created this world, if you've set it up, if you've created my life and you are sovereign over my life, man, teach me how you do things. Don't let me just go through this life messing everything up because I believe the wrong things about you. Now, I think it's possible to go to heaven and believe a lot of wrong things about God. Now, not necessarily about Jesus. In fact, I think you have to get that one right. That if you miss that the triune God sent his only son to die on the cross to cover the sins, to take away the sins that you and I were incapable of taking away from ourselves, that he alone is our salvation and our hope for eternity in the presence of God. If you miss that, you've missed the whole thing, you're out. Are you with me? Like that. You can't mess up the gospel. I think you can actually have a lot of things where you say, well, I think God works like this, and be wrong about it. Here's what you can't be, like super happy with those things. Because if you believe a lot of wrong things about God, you're going to go through most of your Christian life disappointed after disappointed. And it seems like most of the time, you're just trying to explain away why everything happens in your life. And it never leaves you with any peace or security or joy. The psalmist says, God, teach me your ways. Here's a little bit of reality for us. If every time you come to a conversation, whether it's a conversation with a person or if it's a conversation that you're having with the Word of God, and you're the smartest person in the room, at least according to your own estimation, you're never going to learn anything. You're always going to, and think about it, like it's a good time for a little reflection. Think about your conversations. Are are you the one who's listening, or are you the one who's teaching all the time? (coughs) For some of you, I may have just ruined your lunch. Uh, It's a bad habit. It's a bad habit for us to have to think that we know everything. It's a good habit to cultivate a learning heart that says, I can learn from this because I can learn from the Word of God. There's things we can learn from people as well. Psalm 12, verse 3 says, May the Lord cut off flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who's master over us? Sort of this bragging of looking at ourselves and looking at the world saying, Look, I've got it all figured out. If you don't know, just come ask me. I'll tell you who's master over me. Who's going to tell me what to, who are you to judge me? Who are you to tell me that the Bible says this? This is basically the the brag and the strut of our generation. You don't believe me? Just ask me. I'll tell you all about it. The psalmist says, may God cut those lips off. (laughs) Like, if you got any shot in this world, someone better cut your tongue out so that you shut up and listen more than you. I know it's kind of harsh, isn't it? Like, we don't bring that up in conversation. I hope God cuts your tongue off. That's a, that's a crazy... Isn't it weird how we read Psalms and we... Oh, it just sounds so spiritual. Look at it again. Psalm 12, verse 3. May the Lord cut off flattering lips <laughs> and the tongue that makes great boasts. Here's, here's why this is so dangerous. Skip ahead to the end of that Psalm. It says, verse 8, the wicked, which is from verse 7, who freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. There's a celebration of unrighteousness that is not new to 2015 by the way it's going to follow us into 2016 here pretty soon but it's not new because a couple thousand years ago the psalmist was talking about this why because Romans 1 says there's a very intentional suppressing of the truth so that we can have our own way Back in Psalm 27, verse 12, it says, Give me not up to the will. Give me not up to the way of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. You realize that that some of the things in your life, there's a few different categories of, of things we worry about. There's things that cause us worry and anxiety because they're just plain hard. Sickness, illness, financial destruction, death. These are, these are times of mourning and hardship, and they bother us because they're hard. And our choice is that we trust Christ. Right? There's also things that we worry about because uh, they are evil. They, and they are, they're the type of evil that threaten our life and our way of life, and they're real. And what we do is we trust Christ that he's good, that he's in control of all things. And then there are things that we worry about that we just made up in our head, right? Just little stuff that we blew way out of proportion until it, don't raise your hand. How many of you have somebody in this room who you can say, I haven't talked to such and such a person in about four years, and I'm not talking to him. Don't raise your hand. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with families as we plan things like funerals and weddings. Is there anybody else from your family that you expect something you want to do? Well, there's uncle so-and-so, but he won't be here because we haven't spoke to him since 1986, and I'm not fixing it. How did that happen? Well, it usually happens because we think about it, and we think about it, and we blow it so far out of proportion that it becomes absolutely unfixable. That's not what we're talking about here. The psalmist is actually talking in verse 12 about like a pretty real threat to life. People who have an actual will, he says, God, don't give me over to their will because what they want is to destroy me. What they want is to bring me down. Their agenda, their worldview involves using tools like lying and violence, violence against the innocent to accomplish their goal. It's in moments like those, and that brings us right back to the beginning, where we can either live in fear and desperation, or like the psalmist, we can absolutely burst out. Look at verse 13. He's saying, God, don't give me over to the will of my adversaries. God, they're lying, they're violent, they want to destroy me. In verse 13, He says, I believe that I shall look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, you don't get this just from looking at your English Bible. But in the Hebrew, this is an incomplete sentence. And the way it's written is with such imperative that it's almost like he bursts out in the middle of saying this. God, please don't let their evil agenda, Lord, their will to destroy me and our way of life Don't give me up to that. They're they're lying about me, God. They're violent against me. And all of a sudden, he just bursts out. I will see the goodness of the Lord. In fact, in in the Hebrew, he actually says, The works of the Creator. The creator God who spoke and said, let there be light and literally universes flew into being that God who said, let there be life upon the earth and all the life that is here comes into being. That same God, that same creative power, he says, I will see his works right here on this earth surrounded by living people while I'm still alive. God is good. That's the type of explosion that we need to build into our heart that when dark times come, this is where our heart goes without having to think about it. Because in those moments, you don't have time to go, okay, wait a second, yeah, but who do I believe God is? Is God the type of person who would do this? Is God that mean? We have to build so deeply into our hearts this appreciation for the character and the nature of our God that when darkness comes, we say, no, the Lord is my light and my salvation Whom shall I fear? He's the stronghold of my life. Of what shall I be afraid? If you don't have that pre-built in, you won't get it in the moment. Someone may tell you, but it won't sink in. It's going to be a long time after that. We need to build this right now, here on earth, now, while I'm still alive. I will see it. He says, I will look for it, I will seek it, and I will follow it. In the last verse, he says, verse 14, Wait for the Lord. I'll wait for it. Choosing thankfulness over fear, focusing on Him, not just our problem, and choosing to place our trust in Him. And I want to just, it's in here twice, wait for the Lord. This is not a passive waiting. Okay, this isn't a, I'm going to pull up a stool, I'm just going to have a seat for a while, and I'm going to wait for the Lord. Because life is real bad right now, things are real dangerous right now, so I'm just going to sit here, till the whole storm blows over. If you're in a tornado, that might be a great plan. Right? Nobody attacks a tornado. If a tornado is coming at your house, you're like, take this tornado, you're going to grab a baseball bat. It doesn't do any good. There are those type of storms where God covers you. He says, stay sheltered. And there's others where he says, it's time to man up. This is not a passive waiting. It, it's not, and oh my gosh, you transfer this into spiritual language, and then you get Christian weirdos who say things like, I'm just going to wait until Jesus tells me what to do. If you can actually hear the echo behind their words, or even better, if Jesus just does the whole thing while well, I just sit here, that'd be better. That'd be better. My wife and I were in Bible college, I went to Bible college in Scotland, and. Uh, one of the things that we had to do over Christmas and Easter, they had Christmas and Easter break is, and it was super scary, by the way, because we're on the other side of the world, is they said you have to find somebody in one of the network of churches and go to their house and spend Christmas and Easter at their house. It was, it was like, a, hey, let's get these Bible college kids connected with the church. Except if you're from America and you don't know anybody in the U.K., that's, like, scary as all get out. And I remember some friends of ours says, oh, we have these really good friends back home. Uh, Come home with us and you can stay at their place and it, it's going to be great. So we went and we were staying in this couple's apartment and there's a couple things, right? And I know, I know we're running short on time, but some of this is important. You need to hear it. This guy was about 6'4 and right around the 350, 370 pound mark. And we went to a public pool and he wore a very tiny Speedo. <laughs> and I prayed for rapture. I'm like, please God, right now, right now, <laughs> Okay, but that wasn't the worst part. Uh, we were we were sitting at their house. I know you're like it gets worse from that. Uh, we were sitting at their house and we were we were talking while we were e- eating dinner. And uh, he had made dinner when we got there. And his wife, he's like, my wife's not home from work yet. And oh, okay, okay. So we are sitting down, and so we're just making small talk. We don't know him. We've never met him. We're stuck at their house for the next week, right? So we better you know make good here. And okay, you know, so you're at work. What what do you do? Oh, I work at this office and blah, blah, blah. So I I turn the guy. I'm like, so what do you do? He's like, I wait on the Lord. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. We're we're Christians too. Uh, Yeah, but like what job do you do? No, no. I wait on the Lord. He is my provider. Wait, you mean you don't have a job? No, I trust in him. What I wanted to say is No you're an idiot. God is providing because your wife is being a man right now. Like she's wearing the pants in the family uh, and you're a weirdo. See, that's a good story. Don't, don't be a weirdo. If you're a dude, don't wear a Speedo. Okay, good. Good talk. I'm not just going to sit here until Jesus makes it better. I'm not just going to take the default position of I'm doing nothing. If God doesn't want it done, nothing's going to happen. Folks, it is his power that enables us to work. It's his power that enables us to do the things he's called us to do. Two scriptures. Worship team, come on up. We're going to be done here. Psalm 144 verse 1 says this. Blessed be the Lord. By the way, can I make a little note For you, look down at your Bible, or actually you probably don't have it, you can look up at the screen. Anytime in your Bible you see the word Lord, and it's all capital letters, it's actually the Hebrew name for God of Yahweh. The uh, Jewish tradition was that they did not say the name of God, and so they would use other things, they'd use uh, abbreviations, or sometimes they would just say Lord, and for some reason we've kind of adopted that with our English Bible because we're afraid of saying the name of God. But Psalm 144, verse 1 literally says, Blessed be Yahweh, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my loving kindness and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge. Exodus chapter 15, verse 2 says, The Lord is my strength. Again, Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. I, I want to suggest that there are times where God shelters us and that part of that sheltering is giving us an ability to respond. Man, if I could just talk to the husbands for a while, that's, God has given you a responsibility as the head of the house to respond on behalf of your family. Before you ever do it physically, you better be doing it spiritually on your knees before the Lord. Crying out before God for your wife, crying out for your kids, for your in-laws, for your parents, for your everybody associated with you. Like get on your knees and be a warrior for the Lord. In closing, we, we had a beautiful example of it this week. There's I mean there, there's positives and negatives to living in a small community. One of the negatives is we so often feel like everybody knows all our business. I can't do anything without everybody seeing. Everybody knows everything about me, which is why some teenagers are like, I just want to move away to some huge city and go to some huge college where no one will ever know my name. I don't ever have to talk to anybody again. And Yet there are some advantages to living in this community that are almost beyond mention. It was a beautiful example this past Tuesday morning at little morgan's funeral the 12-year-old girl who was killed from Shipshawana, as a rather heartbroken community gathered together and i want you to think context here god has not given us the answer to the question why there's no explanation for the most part at least at least as a dad i would say not not to the place I, was, I would accept. There, there's no like, oh, I can see the good that comes out of it, so everything's okay. We, we Somehow we want that one-to-one trade and it doesn't exist. So there's no answers. There, there's no, this makes sense to me. And yet a few hundred heartbroken members of our community joined together and tearfully forced out the words. And I'm telling you, uh, Jordan, good friend from New Life was leading the worship. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever sung in my whole life. And the the entire church at shore was packed, standing room only. There were people all over the place singing a song that everybody knew by heart, except the volume was so quiet because people could barely sing, but they forced the words out. And Christ alone, My hope is found. It's not found in family. It's not found in wealth. It's not found in success. It's found in Christ alone. He is my light, my strength, my song. He's the cornerstone, the solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and the fiercest storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, When fears are stilled and striving cease. He's my comforter, my all in all. When we have nothing else to do, we have no other way to respond. Here's what a Christian says. Here, in the love of Christ, I stand. Stand up with me. This morning as we... As we turn to the Lord this week, as we in thanksgiving join with friends and family and community. Our thankfulness, our thanksgiving is not because everything's gone so perfect for us in this past year. It's not because everything's turned out the way that we thought it should, perfect and pain-free. Let's be honest, church. For many in this room, it has not. There have been things that have happened to families I love so much in this room that I know you prayed the opposite. I know you prayed, God, please, please don't let this happen. Like Job, you say, what I feared most has come upon me. You can be stuck in this moment. You say, God, I'm not, I'm not sure you're good. I'm not sure I can be thankful to a God who's not always good to me. So we say, in remembrance of his character, God is incapable of evil and all he does is good. And we look back at the past, the past that is littered with successes and failures and hardship and heartache. And yet in those times, we see the hand of God underneath us carrying us our thankfulness is not because everything is perfect it's because here in the Christ alone I stand that's it that's all we've got church so here's my invitation to you this morning put your trust in Him alone we're going to sing this song together and you can respond to God right where you're standing and say God you know the struggle that I've had with this. I choose with everything in me to trust you. When it seems like, as David described, the enemy is all around surrounding me. My heartache is all around me, surrounding me. I can't get away from this thing. You are the lifter of my head. You do it right where you are. You can, You can respond by singing. You can respond by bending your knee. You can respond by coming up here at the altar and saying, God... I need you. I'm so desperate. Here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to leave this room without responding. So whatever that looks like for you, this, this place is wide open. These people are your friends. And in Christ, they've become your family. So as we sing this, respond to